Very good, children. Um, where's somewhere you guys love to go? Where do you love to go? Anywhere. Nowhere. Oh, I'll tell you. No, okay. mums and dads, these children, they don't like going anywhere. It's going to stay at home forever. No, where do you like to go? The countries, yeah, other countries. You went to another country recently, didn't you? Yeah, where did you go? Australia. Ian Smith would be very impressed. Uh, what about Rainbow's End? Would going to Rainbow's End be pretty cool? Yep, yep. Okay, what about uh, there was this place, what's it called? Chipmunks. Ever been to Chipmunks before? No? Oh, I went to Chipmunks once. I was an adult, and I think I had more fun than the children that were there. I like, wasted a bunch of kids with these ball cannon things. It was great fun. I loved going there. What about the beach? Anyone love going to the beach? Yep, beaches are great, eh? What about Grandma's house? Oh, no, no one likes... No, I'm joking. Yeah, lots of fingers. Everyone loves going to Grandma's house. She always feeds you good food. I used to go to my Grandma's house, and every single time, without fail, I would go to my Oma's house, and as soon as I walked through the door, she would have a plate of food. And it had, like, chocolate biscuits and chips and lollies, all the amazing treats my parents never gave me. <laughs> They're sitting just over there. Um, but... You know, it's really nice going to special places, isn't it? You know, you could have gone to one of those places this morning, couldn't you? You could have gone to the beach this morning. That would have been pretty cool. You could have gone to a rugby match this morning. Would have been a big fly, but you could have. You could have gone to many different places this morning, but you're sitting in a building that once upon a time was a lawn bowl place. And isn't, you know, I mean, it's a building with some amazing carpet and, you know, we just like sit in these chairs all day and we stand up and, and the guy at the front's like, okay, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. Now, close your eyes, we're going to pray for a while. Then we read from a book for a while and then some guy's going to stand at the front. He's going to talk for like eight hours yeah, and it just goes on, and by the end of it, you're so hungry, and you need to use the bathroom. Why do we do this every Sunday? It seems a bit weird, right? And then you go to work. Of course, you guys know what this is like, hey, when you go to work. You go to work, and then you go to the lunchroom with your friend. Oh, school. Yeah, that makes more sense. You go to school, and you speak to one of your friends who doesn't go to church, and he goes, oh, what did you get up to on the weekend? You go, oh, I went to church twice. And they're like, what? Why did you do that? It's so weird. Like, you're like, no, nah, it was great, I think. Come I can't even remember what happened, but it was great. You know, we go to church, not, not just because there's some really cool people here, and there is. Not just because there's some amazingly comfy brown chairs. Not just because we get to sing some pretty cool songs. We come here because God's here. I know it doesn't look like it sometimes because, you know, it's like we're singing at these screens and this wall in the back here. But every time we come here, God is here. Because God delights to meet with his people. And we're going to be thinking about what it means for the church to gather together. Why we come to church as God's people. And Mr. Smith over there is going to help us think about that by taking us to a book called Acts. And so we're going to need some help because it's hard to think about, but it's also a little bit easy because it's pretty amazing. So let's pray and we'll ask God to help us understand. Fold your hands. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you've given us a church to belong to. We thank you that we can gather here every Sunday. And Lord, we thank you for your people who make the decision to gather here. 
rather than doing many other things that they could do. We thank you for the privilege, not just of coming together as your people, but of coming to you. And we pray, Lord, help us all to understand the wonder and the glory of what happens here every Sunday. If only, Lord, we had the eyes of faith to see you in your presence, we would never doubt the decision. Help us to see that by faith. Lord, we pray that you would help these children as they come here week by week, Sunday by Sunday, service by service, to lay hold of the majesty and the wonder and the glory of Christ. Help us as a church to love them and show them Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, we are turning through to the book of Acts. As I said earlier, being Reformation Weekend, as has been our habit for the last few years, we've themed our Reformation Weekend sermons around the Reformation. And yesterday, Brother Ian helpfully unpacked covenant theology from the Old Testament. And now we bring ourselves into the New Testament and the fulfillment of that reality. And so we're turning to Acts chapter 2. This morning, we're going to read verse 1 to 13. And verse 42, and Brother Ian's going to preach on verse 42 for us, and he'll open up 42 again this evening. We're going to read Acts chapter 2 from verse 1 to 13. This is God's holy word for you this morning. Hear God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who, speak, who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Verse 42 and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word to us and nourish us through it. Before we invite Ian up, let's pray. Lord, we gather before you this morning as hungry children who desperately need the bread of life. Lord, we come as, as treasure hunters seeking rich spoil. We come as, as thirsty beggars longing for water to refresh our weary souls. And you have promised to do all these things. We thank you that, Lord, when your word is preached, you speak. And so this morning we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't hear an Australian accent. But we would hear Christ's accent. That, Lord, we would leave here with the word of Christ reverberating in our heads and hearts. That, Lord, it would... It would draw us into the very throne room of God and we might sit and listen to wonderful things. Exalt your son this morning, Father, that we might praise him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's good to be back with you today. Sorry about the Australian accent. It's the only one I have. But I pray that you'll hear God speaking this morning. One of the shocks that I get every time I come to New Zealand, one of the first things I look for, and it happened yesterday again, the price of petrol here. Gold is cheaper. It happened to me recently, just a couple of weeks ago. We went on holidays to Queensland, and we went away from the coast in Queensland if you've ever been to Queensland away from the coast, that means we left civilization. And we were driving up in the hinterland. This hasn't happened to me for years. But we were going up steep hills, and I noticed the petrol gauge going down and down and down. I remember in my youth, I used to drive with a light on on the dashboard all the time because even back then I couldn't afford Australian petrol prices. But we were getting into dangerous territory and we were in no man's land and I thought it was going to happen again. You can't run forever without filling up. It's not sustainable. How's your fuel tank this morning? I'm not talking about your car. I'm talking about your fuel tank. The Christian life, we can sometimes keep going. And how did you feel coming to church this morning? How are your reserves? Sometimes church feels like our weekend job, doesn't it? We do our week job and we do our weekend job and we just keep on running and rosters and keep going. And sometimes I just feel like that warning light's on all the time, but I just keep going. Or maybe your warning light's on all the time and you're feeling pretty low in your reserves because maybe it's a moral issue and you think you just don't measure up to where you should measure up to. We seem dry depleted of fuel, but we try to keep going. 
Well, as we come to our passage this morning, and just to let you know what we're doing today, we're looking at the first 13 verses and then jumping to verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And then tonight we're going to look at the remaining verses between 14 and 42 and jump to 42. The disciples on this day in Acts chapter 2, that's how they're feeling because they did given up everything. They'd, they'd left their fishing nets, they'd left their tax collecting booths, they'd followed this guy and he was dead. He was a young man and he was dead. He wasn't just dead, he was executed. He wasn't just executed, he was crucified unjustly and they are feeling absolutely depleted. I'm sure there's been some encouragement since that day. I mean, it doesn't come any more encouraging than a resurrection. That was a pretty good day, wasn't it? But now in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, they're feeling empty again. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 9, because he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. They're empty. They're bewildered. And if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 15, there's not many of them. I'm hopeless at numbers. I'm just trying to count you. I think there are more people in this room than the Christians on this day. I'm not just talking about the disciples. I'm talking about all of the Christians in Jerusalem. There are about 120 of them. 120 people who are going to change the world. They just thought the task was too big. A group of marginalized people in an occupied land with no power they were feeling empty. And so we come to Acts chapter 2 and what verse 1 with this wonderful verse, when the day of Pentecost had arrived. Now, please don't think that Pentecost is originally a Christian festival. I know that many churches have Pentecost Sunday now, but it's a Jewish festival. It's been around for a lot longer. It's a time when they celebrated God who fills the empty. It's a harvest celebration. Now, I don't know, do, did any of you used to do this? When I was a kid, there was a Sunday every year when we used to have what we called Harvest Festival. Does any, did you used to do that here? Yep. No one under 40 probably. Did anyone under 40 know what I'm talking about? Yeah, just learn from your elders. Uh, so what we used to do in the good old days is we used to get big bales of hay and put them out the front of the church which meant half the congregation sneezed for half the service. And we used to get, bring food along. And you used to go to your pantry and you used to get tin fruit, uh, dried spaghetti, umpteen, umpteen cans of beetroot because no one knew what to do with them. And you used to bring them to church and you used to pile them up. Did you used to do this? Yep. And then because we recognised, and this is an amazing thing for people in the city, we recognised that food does not come from, what do you call it, countdown. It actually comes from farms. And we thanked God for filling our barns. And then we took all the food afterwards. We went to some local charity and we gave the food to the local charity. That's not far from Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is a festival of harvest. It's called the, the week of weeks or the festival of weeks. Uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 22 says, observe the feast of weeks. So a week of weeks after Passover. Now let's do some maths. How many days in a week? Seven. A week of weeks is seven times seven, which of course, if you know your maths, is 50. 
because if you count inclusively, we count exclusively, if you count inclusively, you include both the first day and the last day. So seven times seven is 50. And the Greek word for 50, pretty close to the Greek word for 50 is Pentecost. And so that's what Pentecost is. It is a celebration of the rhythm of life that happens after Passover. Now, Passover happens in springtime. This is the Northern Hemisphere, remember. What do we have at Passover? We have Easter. So if you think about Easter, that happens around March, April each year. In the Northern Hemisphere, that's spring. And so what would happen after all these Jewish men have come to Jerusalem for Passover, they would go back home to the farms and they would start the harvest. Now, I used to be a high school teacher and I used to work in country New South Wales. And in springtime, in harvest time, the school's empty. Kids don't come to school because they're busy on the farm. And if you drive anywhere around the countryside, you'll see 24-7 that spotlights are going and headers are going and they're bringing in the harvest. It's hard work. But if that's hard work, it was unbelievably hard work when there was no air-conditioned header. There was only a sickle. That's all you had. And you would go home from Passover and for a week of weeks, for 50 days, you would bring in the grain. And how do you feel at the end of it? At the end of it, you feel simultaneously empty and filled. You're exhausted. You've gone around the clock. You feel spent, burnt out, depleted. But at the same time, your silos and your barns are filled. That's what it means when the day of Pentecost arrived. They were feeling empty. And yet we're going to see this is a day of great filling. As God comes to this small group of disenfranchised, disempowered people and empowers them to change world history, which we know from our perspective 2,000 years later happened. And so in verses 2 and 3, we see that God comes to visit them. He comes in wind and in fire. All the way through the scriptures, we see that the visitation of God is so often in wind and fire. When God appears to Job, he appears to Job in the whirlwind. For those of you who were here yesterday, when God comes to Abram, he comes in a burning torch and a smoking pot. When God comes on Mount Sinai, again there is thunder and there is, there is smoke and there is fire there. God comes to his people who are bereft and he comes in fulfilment of all his covenant promises to the inauguration of the new covenant that is going to come because God is going to give his spirit. The third person of the Godhead. Sure, the Spirit had been present in the Old Testament. There had been visitations of the Spirit upon the nation and God had empowered certain people. But now in a way that is qualitatively different, the Spirit is going to come and the Spirit is going to stay. And he's not just going to stay upon the people collectively. 
but he's also going to come and fill the people individually as tongues of fire come down and as they divide. Look at verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. Verse 4. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are many fulfillments of that prayer, but here is one. God's kingdom comes in the spirit. And with the spirit comes so that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that God has given us his spirit as a guarantee of what it will be like, of what heaven is like. We can see in Romans 8, verse 23, again, agricultural imagery, when we see that the Spirit is the first fruits, guaranteeing. What's life like in the Spirit? What's life like in heaven? I'll tell you what life's like in heaven. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Those who receive the Spirit, this is the fruit that is produced within them. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as the Spirit comes, they are filled And so the filling of the Spirit impacts their speech. And we see in verse 4 that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They start speaking in known languages. Let's look at verses 8 to 11 and let's get this carefully, what we understand here by speaking in tongues. Hopefully I can clear up what this means, particularly in Acts chapter 2. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them speaking in our own tongue, the mighty works of God. This is a miracle. They hear them speaking in their own tongue. Lots of languages in this room. Put up your hand if this is your language. Abba-dabba-doo. That's not what happened. It is not meaningless jabber. Now, I've just met lots of you yesterday, and I've met some of you before. In this room, looking around the room, I know that some of you, your native tongue is English of a sort. I know some of you... Your native tongue is Tereo. I know some of you, your native tongue is Portuguese. Bon dia. Bonjour. To our native tongues, to those who are French. There may be some people here, your native tongue is Africana, but we're not going to mention you today. Some of you, your native tongue may be, it's Korean. I've met Korean here. Thank you. Mandarin. Get. Mandarin, Samoan, and I haven't mentioned half of you. 
Imagine if I was preaching now and you were hearing in your mother tongue. That's what happened. Now, I can speak more than one language, but I can't do more than one simultaneously. You may even be able to speak three languages, but you can't do three simultaneously. And I certainly cannot be heard in many languages that I've never learnt simultaneously. That's a miracle. I have never seen that happen. And I'm not surprised because I wasn't around at the inauguration of the church. This speaking of tongues was stunning. They were hearing in their own language. And why does Luke mention all these places, Cappadocia, Pontus, and all that Phrygia, and all these places that make it really hard for the Bible reader to read it? Why is it? I think he's referring back to the Tower of Babel. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis chapter 10, that they decide to build a tower to reach to the heavens? They try to be God. And God comes down and he confuses their languages. And when God confuses their languages, he then divides people into different cultural groups. And then we all started not understanding each other. And because we don't understand each other, we actually go to war with each other. And it's horrible. Our different languages and our lack of understanding has caused problem after problem after problem in the history of the world. But on the day of Pentecost, they're all speaking different languages. But now they're hearing the mighty deeds of God. Now, a lot of commentaries will say that Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. I don't believe that's right. If it was a reversal of Babel, they would be hearing just in one language. And there's many of us English-speaking people around the world who say, well, everyone in the world should just, speak, should just learn English. That'll be fine. We'd all be one then. It's that sort of attitude. It's a terribly imperialistic attitude. It's not what happened. It's not the reversal of Babel. It's the redemption of Babel. Because although they are linguistically and culturally different, they actually, through this curse of Babel, God redeems the curse of Babel and they become one despite their cultural and linguistic differences. This is pretty astounding what's happening this morning at Covenant Presbyterian Church. I have no idea how many cultures and languages are in this room, 10, 15, 20. And we are coming together as one in the Lord Jesus. There is a unity that redeems Babel. It's an amazing fact that I just do not understand, but I just live in awe of, that God so often takes the curse of sin and redeems it to his glory. That's what's happening here. Linguistic diversity is redeemed to God's glory. Sickness is the curse of sin. But we see healing and we see redemption to God's glory. Death is the curse of sin. But the cross of Jesus uses the curse of sin to bring blessing. Injustice 
is the curse of sin, but in the injustice of Pontius Pilate's court, we see a demonstration of the righteousness of God. Death is the curse of sin, but we see death redeemed in resurrection. So often the story of the Bible is God coming into our world that is so tainted with sin and is so cursed by sin, and God, through the gospel, redeems the curse that brings glory by his grace. This is no small thing that is happening this morning. In Auckland, you speak many languages. And I'm not just talking now about different uh, English and French and German. I'm talking about the language of Gen Y, whatever they're talking about. Millennials. Have you tried to listen to them? What on earth are you guys? There's lots of you here. What are you talking about? Boomers. Academics who work in universities, unbelievable, can't understand them. IT specialists who think they're clear in what they're talking about. Tradies who speak that strange sort of jargon that they speak. We all basically, this is how Auckland works if it's like Sydney. Most people in Auckland live in an echo chamber and they only listen to their own and they build their own prejudices. But when we come together as the people of God, the curse of linguistic divide goes, of cultural divide goes. That which is cursed is redeemed and we are filled with the Spirit as we are understanding each other. This is a miracle of hearing, that God takes the preaching and applies it to the individual that the individual would understand. Let me tell you, if I didn't believe that was true, I would have given up preaching 30 or 40 years ago. I would have given up telling the gospel to anyone else as well. It's a miracle of hearing. These people on the day of Pentecost who felt empty, not just because it was the end of the harvest time, but they felt empty because Jesus had left them. He'd gone back to heaven. And God comes and fills them. And you're saying, well, that's great for them. But what about me? It's not the day of Pentecost today. Does God continue to fill? And the answer is, yes, he does. And the answer comes there. If you jump down, we've gone through the first 13 verses, down to verse 42, when we come to what we call the means of grace whereby God fills us. See, here's my problem. For those of you who don't know, I'm the principal of a theological college. We train people for pastoral ministry in the Presbyterian Church of Australia. You know, every year we send heaps of them out. That's exciting. But the difficulty is, and it's happening more and more, 5, 10, 20 years in, they give up. They burn out. It's not just ministers who burn out, by the way. It's church workers who burn out. Some of them burn out and they still sit in pews. Maybe that's you this morning, feeling pretty depleted in the fuel tank. Some of them give up on ministry. Some of them give up on the church. Some even give up on the faith altogether. And books are being written at the moment about, here's the big word, I don't know if you're using it in New Zealand, it's all over the place in my circles in Australia, resilience. 
We need to build resilience into these guys. And these are all good things. I mean, more self-care, well, that might be an issue. Psychological help, go to a psychologist, that's fine. I'm not speaking against that. Time out, yep, time out's often good. Medication, yep, sometimes medication is good. But sometimes we are looking at all of these big things, which might be important, and we're not looking at the most basic thing that will keep you going as a Christian. And the basic thing that will fill your tank regularly as a Christian is the means of grace. If you look at verse 42, this is how to fill your tank, with the Spirit, daily. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four things, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayers. Let's go through those four. Firstly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We'll see this tonight when we look at the second half of chapter 2, that on that day, 3,000 people are baptised and join the church. It's a pretty big follow-up class. The whole Christian community is 120. Do the maths. And in spiritual kindergarten, you've got 3,000 people. Now, sure, they were mostly Jews, and they did know their Old Testament, so that was an enormous advantage. But we've got to reteach them how to read the Old Testament now through the lens of the fact that Jesus has come. That's a massive need for teaching. Teaching is a means whereby you are filled. I asked you at the beginning of the service how your fuel gauge was. How is it now? I'm part of the way through the sermon. Is it coming up a little bit? Are you a little bit more filled for the coming week? Not because what I'm doing, no, but because the Spirit takes that which is preached and applies it to your life. We're filling you up. That's where it's for. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. It's so important that the people who stand here and preach to you week in and week out are given time to prepare and to do that well so that you might be filled. It's an ordinary means of grace. There's nothing extraordinary about it at all. Of course, it primarily happens from here, but it doesn't only happen there. Uh, some of you go to some small groups during the week, Bible study groups. Do you do programs with kids, programs with youth? Do you have opportunity one-on-one -on -one for teaching? They're all opportunities of receiving the means of grace. In fact, it doesn't even have to be with other people, although that's important as well. But each morning as you get up and as you open the Bible and as you read the Bible, so you are being taught. And so God's Spirit is filling you by His grace. Don't go running after all the big fixes, I mean, for resilience, if you're not looking at the little fix. The regular means of grace through people being taught from God's Word. Number two, and to the fellowship. Now, if you look at verses 44 and 45, we can see that their fellowship was incredibly rich. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who had need. 
Now, this, of course, does not mean that there's a problem with private property. We know, as you go through Acts and other parts of the New Testament, that the early believers owned property. It's not a call to collectivism. But what it is, is a call to radical generosity. This is, you just did something that was amazing. Where else in New Zealand society, you just brought the collection up. Is that right? And some of you gave online and some of you put in there. Is that right? Where else do you just throw money away like that? And here's the amazing thing that Logan just announced. It's going to be lunch. Is that right? And if you didn't put money in the collection, can you come to lunch? You can. And if you didn't bring food, can you come to lunch? Where else does that happen? Let me ask you. And it's, of course, we are in a relatively wealthy society. I know we think we're not as wealthy as we should be, but we are pretty wealthy by world standards. But we're very time poor. And so I see people who give money, but here's something that's amazingly valuable. I see people who give time out of their busy weeks, who visit people, who care for people. Radical, amazing generosity, being filled with his grace. Do you, do you know that your being here this morning encourages me and the person next to you and the person on the other side of you? I mean, you could have been doing something else this morning. I'm an Australian, but apparently something's happening this morning. When the minister stands up, whoever's leading the service stands up and says, it's so encouraging to be, see you here this morning, they mean it. You are filling my tank as I pray I'm filling yours. And as I give money, as I give time, as I look at ways to show radical generosity, it's just ordinary means of grace. Here's a word for it. Fellowship. Teaching, fellowship. Thirdly, we see in verse 42, the breaking of bread. This word occurs a couple of times in Luke's writing. In Luke chapter 24, it's on the road to Emmaus. And particularly the breaking of bread is mentioned in Luke chapter 22. And scholars argue over, does this mean having a meal or does it mean the Lord's Supper? And my answer to that is yes. But it clearly does mean the Lord's Supper. And I think it means hospitality as well. But listen to the Lord's Supper, because this is amazing. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, and this is just this week as I've been preparing this, I actually asked our faculty what it means during this week, because I was doing my brain in. We nearly always talk about the cup when we come to the Lord's Supper. And that's fine. We talk about the blood, and that's all fine. But he talks about the bread. And you know that in the Lord's Supper, in the Last Supper, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. And we know that the Jews in the Passover use unleavened bread for two reasons. There's no yeast in the bread because that's the sort of bread that they took quickly as they left Egypt, so we're told. But there's a second reason why there's no yeast in the bread. And that's because there's no yeast in the bread because through the Bible, yeast is a symbol of sin. And if you've made bread, I've made bread many times, you just put a little bit of yeast in the bread, hardly anything, in the dough, and it impacts the whole loaf. 
And the whole idea of not having yeast in the bread at Passover is that sin has been removed from the bread because a little bit of sin will impact the whole loaf. And Jesus takes this bread with no yeast in it and he breaks it. And it's symbolic of the fact that this is his body. The yeastless bread reminds us of Jesus' sinless body that is broken for us. And so in that, we have fellowship together. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we meet together from time to time at the Lord's Supper, so we are reminded in my sin of the sinless Saviour who took for me that which was my curse. That's amazing. Now, on a Reformation Sunday, it's probably good to say this. Part of the Reformation was all about the Catholic Roman Catholicism's excesses around this is my body was transubstantiation and, and it was worshipped and it was venerated and it, was, it, was just, it just got too far. And so here's our problem. In Protestant churches, we ride the pendulum and we say, oh, don't worry, it's only a symbol. Don't worry about it. And we, we react from here over to there. But symbols have meaning. And we should not devoid the symbol of their meaning. I used to lecture in a theological college in Vanuatu, and it's great living in a theological college that's a residential college because you can always tell when married couples are having an argument because the place goes quiet. You don't hear them. And they kind of yell at each other in whispered tones because they don't want to hear, but they're having an argument. But one day... When I was there, there was this guy who was quite fiery. He was a candidate for the ministry of the Presbyterian Church. And he was having an argument and it went from the whispered tones to yells. And it moved outside the house to public domain. And he had lost it. He was cross. He went into his house. I saw it happen. Got the marriage certificate. Got matches. And burnt it. Was he still married afterwards? <laughs> Just. Yes, he was still yes, he was still married afterwards. Afterwards, it was only a bit of paper, wasn't it? He was a candidate for the ministry. We met as a staff, we expelled him from the college. But I'll tell you what, when he disdained the symbol, he disdained his marriage. I'm wearing a wedding ring. It's only a symbol. I'm not going to disdain it, even though it's only a symbol. We need to be careful. When we come to the Lord's table, this is what Christ has instituted for us. It is not unimportant. It is not the actual physical body and blood of Jesus. No. But Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And you know what happens when we come? He feeds us. He feeds us by his spirit. Number four, prayer. Acts talks so much about prayer. Peter's vision to go to Cornelius comes in the context of prayer. 
We see the seven are appointed in Acts chapter 6 because the apostles need to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Prayers are offered as Barnabas and Saul are sent off on their missionary journey. Paul meets with the elders from, from Ephesus at Miletus and they kneel down and they pray together. God meets us and fills us as we meet him in prayer, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. How are you going with the means of grace? How's your Bible reading program? How's your learning program as people teach you in different contexts? How are you going at selfless generosity of fellowship that may not fill you, but we are mutually filled as we fill each other? How do we value the breaking of bread, whether that's hospitality, but in particular when we come to the Lord's Supper? How are we valuing prayer? How's our prayer life going? You see, in the issues of resilience, we may go running to psychologists and running to medication and running to the latest book on resilience, and that may be all fine. But if we're not doing the most basic things of the ordinary means of grace, how should we expect God to be filling us? Many years ago, one of my daughters rang in distress. It was lunchtime. We were sitting down having lunch. She was about 18, and she'd been driving for just over 12 months. And she rang and she was distressed. And I thought, oh, here we go. I said, what's wrong? I was waiting for the car accident. She said, no, I've run out of petrol. Okay. I said, where are you? She said, I ran out at the top of a hill. And I managed to coast down the hill. And there's a service station at the bottom of the hill. And I've coasted into the service station. And I'm actually parked next to the petrol bowser. I said to her, that's a really good place to run out of petrol. But she was still distressed. She was crying. I said, ah, oh, you know the problem. You haven't got any money. She said, no, I've got money. I said, what's the problem? She said, Dad, have you ever noticed with your daughters, there's a certain way they say Dad when they need something. Dad, I don't know how to fill the car with petrol. <laughs> She had been driving for over 12 months. Look, I want to tell you that I'm an awesome dad. I taught all four of my kids how to do a hill start. Before they had their licenses, all four of my kids were not only taught how to change a tire, they had to do it in front of me. They all know how to change a tire. She can do a reverse park. I taught her everything, except I never taught her how to put petrol in the car. <laughs> so I said to her, look, Sweetheart, down next to the driver's seat, you'll see a little lever. Pull that up, and then something will pop open. Now, go over to the tank. You know how to read. See the one that says diesel? Don't go anywhere near that one. Go over to the other one that says unleaded. Put squeeze, let go, petrol cap, then pay your money, then you'll be fine. We sometimes go running after what it means to be filled as a Christian. And we forget the most basic step. The most basic step that she needed to know to fill the car. The most basic step that you need if you're feeling dry 
if you're feeling low, if your tank is empty, is this. It's the ordinary means of grace. Come to church and hear the teaching. Go to your small group. Open your Bible and read it. Fellowship with other Christians. Mutual encouragement with radical generosity. Because here's an amazing thing in Christian fellowship. The more you empty yourself, the more you'll be filled. Come to the Lord's Supper. And might God minister to you by his spirit. And pray. The ordinary means of grace. Jesus was baptised with the Spirit at his baptism, as happens here on the day of Pentecost. But Jesus is constantly withdrawing so that he can pray, so that he can spend time with his Father. If Jesus needs to do that, then surely we do as well. When did you last pull off the road? When the tank was empty and access the ordinary means of grace that God might fill you by his spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone. As you filled those first disciples on the day of Pentecost with your spirit, that the spirit has not left us, but he remains with us. And we thank you that he continues to minister to us, to fill us and to empower us, even though at times we feel empty. Our Father, we confess to you that sometimes we have sought after the extraordinary without necessarily focusing on the ordinary. And thank you that in a most extraordinary, ordinary way, that you fill us as we read your word and as we hear your word preached, as we engage in generous fellowship one to the other, as we break bread together and remember what you have done for us, and as we pray. Fill us afresh, Father, we pray this week. Fill us afresh this Lord's Day, that this week as we go forth, we may go empowered and filled with your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.